How are you, Julie? I'm good, thanks, Bezo. And you? I'm good. That's good. This looks like my sort of cookbook. Yeah, it's a beautiful one, isn't it? And it's mm. more um, more domestic from Mark Best. It's his newest one. And we're going to be launching our, finally, after five years, our cookbook book club with it. So explain the cookbook book club to me. So um, working with Danielle Dixon. Yeah. So she will create the menu from the book, for whichever book that we choose. So we're going to start off with Mark Beth's new book. And we will sell tickets to the dinner. And it's limited amount of tickets. So it's only 10 to 12 tickets. Yeah. And then um, we will discuss the dishes and the book. And so Danielle will actually sit down with with the diners yeah and they can you know they can ask her all sorts of questions and she can because we talked about uh, i can't remember which podcast it was on but it would have been one of the either the one with ben or the one with danielle about mm. cooking out of cookbooks and chefs cooking out of cookbooks and then going well that doesn't work yeah or yeah. it doesn't it works but not sort of the way that it's written yeah. in the cookbook yeah. so so that's why it's good that we've got Danielle doing this because, you know, she actually can say, oh, you know, this worked, I had to do this, I had to do that. To it. Yeah. So a lot of our events, we actually work with Danielle um, and she's really good in the sense that she will actually stick to the, the recipes to see whether it does work and then she'll say, oh, no, that doesn't work, then we'll have to tweak it. There is some really good, nice, like, cookbooks are funny because everything sort of obviously looks pretty in mm. cookbooks. But... Yes. Um, you know, just looking at this red rice pilaf, and it looks fantastic. That so looks that like should be fun. Like. Maybe th- she'll put that on the menu for yeah. our cookbook book club. I don't know what the garnish is. It looks like a deep fried egg white or something. What is that, Alana? <laughs> Chef extraordinaire. <laughs> Come on, on the spot. Ah, uh, yeah, they they just whisk some eggs up and deep fried that. Fry that. The hell out <laughs> of it, I reckon. Did you see? Oh, and, actually, and then just made some wizardry kind of movements. <laughs> it's all in the movements and the execution, obviously. Mm. <laughs> all right, cool. Thanks, Jill. No worries. And you'll Thanks, be obviously Bezo. selling the cookbooks at um, the um, book at club. The cl- yes, definitely. Yeah. All right, so catch you next week. Thank you. We, we we should wrap up things that we like, like like food. That's what you bugging us, Jeff. You know it. We're gonna be like the Partridge family, but with food! You like food, don't you? Got any uh, white bread? Yes? Oh, wait. I am the spaghetti. Duval, you're not the spaghetti. I am the spaghetti. Let go of the lid. Just spaghetti in here. Is this organic? Sure. Is it grass-fed? Yes. Cruelty-free? What's so special about the cheesemaker? As the saying goes, you are what you eat. And I am freaking cheese. Eating crackers. How about corned beef, Mr. Taggart? I'd say you've had enough. How are you, Lana? As you scull your wine <laughs> quickly before we start. I've got to prepare myself, you know. I... When you have a very um, generous sponsor like Stacy and you get free wine, you have to take oh, advantage of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's. <laughs> and I've been really happy because. He came in and did a podcast with me, asking him a million questions, as I normally do, about stuff I'm interested in. Did you actually question if he would give you wine while he was on air? No, so no, like, he, he'd yeah. been giving us wine 
beforehand. Okay, so it wasn't like... And it was like, what, I don't particularly like white wine. And it was like, white wine, white wine, white wine, white wine. Oh. And then I was like, well, sort of, I like red wine better. And every week since then, it's been red wine. So wow. I've, been very, I've been very happy. Well, it's all about communication. And um, I'm right into the Malbec at the moment for some reason. And this has got a little bit of Malbec in it. So I'm quite happy. It is Gaelic Cemetery. So there you go. Do you like it? Nailed it. Huh? Nailed it. Cheers. Cheers. Um, welcome to the Cheesy Podcast. Thanks. I love cheese. You love cheese? Well, normally yes. we have cheese, but we've been a little bit slack on that. That's okay. Uh, that, we just um, had a picnic on Sunday with lots of chefs, so there was like, everyone brought cheese. It was that yeah. thing so to bring, so now our fridge is just full of cheese. And there's this amazing spot just around our corner that's called Fromage the Cow, so it's like a licensed cheese. It's just open? Yeah, yeah. in Milton. And so I'm, I would love to go there, but also I feel like that would be irresponsible and kind of against what I'm doing at the moment being this theme of drinks with chefs being wasted and I was like I can't waste the cheese that's in my fridge and go to the soup place <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, you gotta uh, do the right thing and I eat do. everything up well first. you know if that's what I have to do in life I feel like I can live with that well I used to run live music venues and when we had well, for us the bigger acts that international touring acts and quite often we'd get the riders and you know they'd have cheese platters would be a standard thing on a lot of those riders and I used to go to the deli at Rosalie because I know those guys yeah my best friend works there and they would do everything up for me and you'd put it all out and you'd just leave it there with the cling wrap and nine times out of ten it wouldn't even get opened so <laughs> back, back, back home it'd come and into the fridge yes. or you know if it was a particularly good night the staff would sit around and have a few drinks and demolish off the rider i'm surprised how many things they actually have in that little deli like in oh, a small yeah. place like rosalie like at the moment we've got a dish on which is called brassica so it's like all the things in the brassica family mm. and ornamental kale we couldn't get it from our suppliers so i went down there and they've got it as flowers i'm like, mm. yeah, can i buy them <laughs> i'm just I gonna buy a bunch of flowers for work um eco botanica i don't know if you follow her on twitter or no. on instagram and she's down in tasmania at the moment and she posted a picture today of a bitter leaf. Oh, I'm trying to think what it was called. Radicchio or something along those Yeah, kind. it was. I think it was a radicchio, but it was particularly um, like this amazing sort of red and white. Um, and she said she's quite sensitive to bitter leaves and doesn't really grow them much because she doesn't like them. But she was thinking of growing it just for... Uh, just for the ornamental value because it just looked amazing. Yeah, right. Um, so what have you got in an all-brassica dish? Um, well, so we've got the actual stem of the broccoli and then that's um, deep-fried and then we've got like this cheese fondue which is obviously going to make it Deep-fried del- stem of broccoli. Yeah, it's pretty delicious, I'm going to admit. Like, um, like in little rounds? Okay, so just no, the whole stem. So it looks like a massive tree. And then you've got like all the things that, it, that are included in that brassica family, like, um, you know, the ornamental kale, the Brussels, the cabbage, you know, everything that stems essentially off that. Yeah. That's not a pun. I didn't mean that, yeah. but I'm going to use I'll, it. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> so your deep front, are you coating it anything or is it straight into the deep front? It's all the things that we add to it as well. And yeah. it's all about layers. And Josh's food, especially, it's... Um, it's a lot more subtle than any other place that I've worked at, but I think that's why he can match it with champagne and he's always got champagne degos, which are kind of 
something that I would personally like to go to, oh, not go. be on the other side of it. <laughs> I've got the colours wrong. It's, it's sort of like purple into green. Oh, yeah, that's red bean sorrel. Mm. Yeah, that's that beautiful. That looks amazing. I've actually teed up... Oh, I would have loved to include them with the next drinks with chefs, but they're just on that. It's one of those things that was an afterthought and we've only connected with them because, you know, everyone started talking and saying, have you heard of Food Connect? And I'm like, no. And so, like, the last guys, that they're actually coming along just to be a part of the crowd on the day. But what they've done is actually encourage farmers to grow these things. Like you were saying, you know, she's never, she doesn't like bitter leaves or anything like that. But all these things that normally would be, you know, left for dead. Yeah. They're, they're getting those old seeds and creating it and building up a community in Brisbane that there will be chefs to say, yes, I'll have, you know, a carrot that's not orange or I'll have, you know, something that's a little bit unusual, which everyone's on that trend anyway, but it's great to be reintroducing these old native um, ingredients well, even. and just connecting those farmers and the chefs together so there's an actual it's, they're not doing it because that's what farmers love to do they love you know yeah. they're not well, factory uh, workers they want they're passionate about this I love growing stuff at home that oh, I love growing anything at home because I'm not particularly a good gardener but um, growing stuff that you can't buy so yeah. like I always get a kick out of mulberry season you know because it's like this huge bounty of fruit and the kids love it and you just can't buy it especially when they're you know if you get a really good year the you can't, i don't think you can beat a good mulberry i had the same thing like at home we're only on a city property and so there's limitations to what we can actually grow there but i was always saying because my dad used to be he's just one of those guys that's good at everything and you know gardening is one of those things where i'm awful at it (laughs) so i always drag him down here and teach me how to to actually grow things um but i kept saying to him like dad no i just want things that i can't get at the shops and he's just like alana you're killing everything he's like we've got to go back to the basics you need to grow so yeah exactly he's like i'm gonna put tomatoes and figs and i was like dad i don't want these things and do you know what there was this fig tree that he grew or that I grew um, <laughs> and the figs off this tree was just like jam like I think figs are the most overrated fruit oh, until really? no, well, they're no. so the thing is but, but farmers I never... do get them and they pick them too green and so they don't have that time to develop and picking them straight off the tree I'm just like okay this is something that's not you know different to what you can get at the shops but it is so different so my grandmother always grew figs, and okay. then I've, I've never bought oh, figs from like privileged upbringing. I hear it from um, <laughs> Woolies or somewhere like that. But I used to I'm, I've been a sales rep for for work for quite a few years, and I used to do a run up through Nambour, and there's a little place just past the um, uh, the uh, just on the road out from Nambour, and you duck in, and they have a farm there, a little fig farm. It's not very big. 100 fig trees and you could buy boxes of seconds so yes. overripe fruit That's where it's at. and I used to go through and I'd pick the best ones out and then they'd go under the grill with maybe a bit of blue cheese or something for, for dinner and then the, the really sort of broken ones would go into fig jam because yep. fig jam is one of my all time favourite yeah. things okay. you so, know what that stands for don't you yes yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> but so yeah I've never really but I can understand, especially if you went to Woolies and bought a fig for twenty four dollars a kilo and it was underripe, you'd be 
ropeable, I reckon. Yeah. So. I actually, when I was in Italy, so that's why I um, essentially wanted to become a chef. Mm. Is when I was about six years old, I was going down for this road trip down to Melbourne with my family, and we stopped by this pizzeria, and they had like traditional Italian pizza. I'm like six years old. I'm like, what the hell is, is this? this? <laughs> <laughs> it's this thin thing. I'm not eating that. And Dad's just like, just eat it before you start complaining. Planning. Try it. And I ate it, and it was just this is what food should be. Like, what have I been eating? And yeah. it is just one of those, it's unfortunate that everyone wants to work these days. Everyone wants to achieve things. And like, and so when it comes to food, like we've had to make sacrifices and you do, you take, you know, short people that take shortcut after shortcut. And what we're left with is it's like this poor excuse of a replica of what it's supposed to be. Well, and- I, th- I think the the best thing you can do, I, I always say, if you can have one thing you've either made or grown yourself in a dish, it makes it completely different. So, you know, even if I do a salad and I throw a bit of rocket in from the garden or some herbs or a couple of tomatoes, just something, it, I reckon it elevates it just that little bit more. Whereas if you're just buying everything and my wife's a um she's a researcher a cancer researcher and she came home the other day and it takes a lot to sort of blow her away and she's like what percentage of australians do what percentage of australians diet do you think is essentially junk food there's a technical term that they use in the research it's like um high impact or high energy foods but it's essentially junk food she's like what percentage of an average australian's diet do you reckon junk food and i'm like 25% 25% thinking that that's pretty high yeah and she's like no it's 45% so four and a half out of every 10 meals well it is it's so convenient isn't it and it's cheaper than actually buying and I know as a chef like as much as everyone thinks that you know we create these amazing meals yes we might do that once a week and the rest of the week we'll buy these vegetables and they will this is probably terrible to say but um <laughs> they'll go rotten we don't have time to like cook yeah. up meals every night and they'll just rot and go to waste in your fridge and so and you're exhausted you don't want to cook when you come home no that's <laughs> doing that's... an 18 hour day and then coming home that and cooking that's probably the last thing on my mind well that was always like I've always been into food and always love cooking and that's always been one of the things that stopped me ever going to being a chef yeah. was I didn't ever want to come home and not want to cook because yeah. that was one of the things I really really enjoy is cooking and I, I love so retain that don't yeah, like, <laughs> don't believe that out well I to... think I think if you then you if you're being a chef you're sort of pushing that passion to the next level wanting to do something extraordinary for someone else whereas I, I'm a bit selfish I just want to cook for there's nothing wrong with that group. and I think more people should be like that as well yeah. but the growing the um, oh, and this is the, the other we're talking I've been banging on about this for ages but figs right why doesn't figs grow really well in Brisbane why hasn't the camp why don't we have these amazing 60 metre tall fig trees Well, that's what I used to work at South Bank, and they put so much of the government money into these beautiful gardens, and that's all very well. But from a chef's perspective, I'm just like, why do they not have an edible garden? Like, then all the chefs around could kind of forage and uh, (laughs) save on food costs. And, like, also it would be educating the people, and they did. They've actually set up in South Bank this amazing little Japanese garden where it's like, and the amount of money that they put into it is acceptable 
extraordinary and you wouldn't be able to do it from a restaurant perspective but they do every season they'll just like dig it all up and put it back in like you know the next season and it's great and people froth on it yeah well i know with the boys like i've got three young kids yeah and they're very good with food they're not picky at all like they'll pretty much eat anything but if you go into the garden and pick a mulberry or pick a fig or even some rocket like they will try anything that comes out of the ground it's just it's almost like a compulsion they they're much more willing to eat something straight off the off the vine than they are if it comes out of a packet so and i think they actually get their sort of curiosity about food from experiencing that you know that that they're much more more likely to try you know i remember being in italy and like that's so I actually made no money despite working six days <laughs> a week at a very good restaurant in Italy. And then, so at the end of it, and then we got ripped off by a housemate, which was a teacher. And so you think you can trust them and they ran off to Calabria. And it was a long story, but at the end of the day, we got these in Italy as well. They have this mentality of if it's broken, you're not going to fix it. And so we got all these bikes that. that were just, you know, left for dead at the train station and I actually put them all together so it was like a Frankenstein of bikes and then these like a couple of the bikes we gave to our you know friends to ride around in and then two of these dodgy I can't actually tell you how dodgy they were about as dodgy as you can get um, before you could not ride but them. we actually decided to ride from Spain all the way through France up the Swiss Alps and to Germany and you know, we we saw a few people on the way doing the same thing, but they had these next level, you know, two thousand yeah. euro bikes doing it, and we're like trudging up. I I what thought a, I was going backwards when I was up the Swiss Alps. I'm like, this is ridiculous. You, you get fit with all that extra work. That oh you had to yeah, do. and we ate so much in Italy that I'm like, I'm not going back to Australia fat. <laughs> I've got to do this. <laughs> but also, there's like this gypsy path, and so the first day, my partner at the time, he actually got thirteen flat tires, and he's like. That's it. And because every time you get a flat tire, you have to turn the bike upside down, take the off straps off, take everything off, then to change the wheel. And he's just like, this wouldn't be a problem in Australia. We're going back to Australia. This is too hard. I'm like, no, we're not. And so to solve the problem, we stopped by the service station and just got drunk. I'm like, what are we going to (laughs) do? And so and I was like, I've got a great idea. I'm just going to W the whole way. It'll be fine. And so we just went on this rampage of like throwing out all our stuff. Like I was throwing out my wallet from Australia with Australian money that I didn't realize, obviously, at the time. Um, (laughs) But literally all we had was shampoo and that was to clean my hair, to clean my body. No conditioner. I couldn't have, you know, have that extra bit of weight on the actual bike and we had this little stove top and my mum actually because she turned 50 don't tell anyone that um <laughs> she'll kill me um but she dropped an, a tent off to us and we met her in venice because you know it wasn't fashionable to to camp in italy so yeah. we couldn't even buy a tent so we All had right, a tent. No, no camping no equipment. we had a tent and we had this little stove top that we could light up anyway and we would and we had pasta and rice and whatever we found on the side of the road that's what we would incorporate into that meal and because of this gypsy kind of trail yeah, they did was, they they, yeah, they started everywhere exactly wild and stuff the growing. figs that's what i was getting back to we went ballistic on these figs so much so that my boyfriend um started throwing up pink and <laughs> There was a small town in Spain that we were at, and there was 12-year-olds going, like, 
going hardcore on these bikes that they shouldn't have been on down the main street and then the police don't even didn't even look sideways at that but came over to us and said oh you know are you drunk this is you know you're drunk too or something like no you just ate too many things i swear (laughs) i'm really sorry we'll just sleep it off The, the the side of the road um, wild food culture like um, one of the things that got me into sort of growing my own stuff and doing that sort of things and making my own cheese and milking cows was River Cottage and it always impressed me how he could just go down to his little local river and go oh I'll pick this and I'll pick this and I'll pick this like there's all this stuff sort of growing wild and I think it's because they've had that culture of letting food things sort of grow on the side of the road but i think like we do have that too but we don't have the knowledge and that's why yeah, drinks with chefs like this time because chefs i don't know everything i am no. i'm happy to admit that and that's why i've actually teamed up with you know scientists and foragers and forward-thinking farmers and that's why it's a huge this one more than ever it's not just you know making that tight-knit community of chefs and hospitality so we can grow from one another but actually including these people that can therefore educate us to do a better job because yes okay foraging is a trend at the moment Mm. but with that takes responsibility yes it's great to learn about these things around us and we can utilize that but there's certain things that you know if it's um i know for example um what is it c not subite just say it's c-bite but i can't remember the word it'll come to me um but it comes out of the estuaries and it actually uses it's a filtration system yeah, so, so if you, you turn around if you've got all these chefs going oh yeah, that's the next thing and then completely <laughs> raid this it's actually doing damage to, to, to the, the in, uh, to the environment and so that's why we've got these guys on board to say yes okay great you're into these things here's some things you might not have seen but also be careful yeah. and have that and it is all about education which we don't get like we have to learn that ourselves and that's after hours and so everyone's doing okay some people might have a lucky job at 50 hours a week but most of the chefs that i know are doing 80 90 hours a week so the at the end of the day you're not you just want to have a beer and relax you do and you will research that's the natural thing for people to do but that's why we've created drinks for chefs to have that like there's a responsibility with being a chef as well and that we need to take seriously. It's good to support, um, like, you know, if you're a farmer and you want to do something interesting, it's good to know that there's an outlet for it. It's good to know that if you're going to try something different, that there's a community on the other side to support it, that you don't have to drive everything yourself. Mm. Um, you know, you don't want to have to... Like, you can't go and grow a crop of something unusual and then go, oh, well, I guess everyone's going to go and buy it. Yeah people are a lot more likely to take chances and risks if they know they can ring Food Connect and say, hey, we've got X amount of kilos of this. Can you guys go and let everybody know that it's there and first in best dress? And if they sell it all, then next year they might make a little bit more or grow a little bit more. So, But it's even like I know that um, when I was at Aquitaine, we actually, the head chef that I was with, I've followed him through the last 10 years and he had this really good relationship with this farmer called Bill. And one day we finally said, oh, what the hell? Like, we've finally got one day off. We're closed for a public holiday. Let's all go up and we'll have, you know, a barbecue at Bill's place. So he was so excited. Like, he got 
the barbecues going and all the farmers from around town and and we had this really like genuine collaboration and the thing is he was really embarrassed he's like oh i'm really sorry things have been tough at the moment and we haven't been able to afford a weeder and just being there we're just like bill this stuff is gold don't weed it pick it send it to us we'll pay for it and it's all these like until you really go up and i know you do spend that so much time at work the last thing you want to do is to think about on your time off is work but it's so important just to take it that 10 percent more and that's why we're trying to like make it easy for the chefs just to you know three times a year four times a year to get together this is where we're at where do we want to like push brisbane's food or essentially now we're moving up to the coast queensland's food and it's just to make sure we're all on the like the right track yep and i don't think it's just chefs either like I work in the butcher industry. I don't know how many butchers would have been to the beef or the pork or the lamb farms that their produce comes from, or even know. Like they buy from an abattoir, or they buy from a they buy from a meat wholesaler who buys from a farm. Like I don't. Some of them do, but a lot of them just ring up an order. You know, give me twenty chooks and whatever, and they don't know where it comes from. So. If they don't know where it comes from or the conditions that it's grown in or what sort of climate it's grown in or what sort of grass that particular beast eats, then they can't tell their customer. So their customer doesn't have any connection with the food either. Um, it's, it's a little bit... I guess it's commercial, but... It's um, disjointed. And then you don't have the respect. Like, that's what it comes back to as well. Is like when you know... You know, this guy, like one of the guys, for example, one of the farms that we're supporting is Peachester. And so they, instead of making it mass produced chicken, they're just like, well, if we have this amount of chicken, then we can feed them this. And then they'll poo, and then the grass will grow, and then our cows can come eat that. And then we don't have to buy in any grain at all. So that grain coming from this, you know, and all obviously the pollution and the transportation of that. And therefore, it's like, it's got kind of got a Dan Barber. Do you know who Dan Barber is? No. Okay. I have to read his book. That's going to be the next book Julie gets in. Right. But um, <laughs> She probably already has it. You do? Yeah, okay. You Exceptional book. And just his philosophy of like, just like, you know, an ecosystem and how it should naturally form. And instead of, you know, oh, we need this amount of grain, so we're going to transport it, yeah. it from this side of the well, world. Like my place, Lantarnalin, which is a little hobby farm. Yeah. And it's... I'm sure you do the same thing. Yeah, well, it's mostly Lantana, but, um, you know, the grass grows at my place and I could, I could make it all pretty and slash it with a mower and, and keep it down that way. But it's much more, it's a lot better. Well, A, I like hand milking a cow, making my own cheese, but you know, it's a lot better to have a cow that wanders around and eats the grass and fertilizes everything. And I can take that and put it on my veggie gardens and stuff like that and get some milk. You know, I'm basically converting my grass into free milk. Um, yeah, there's just, just something about that that sort of... Um, it makes sense. Yeah, inbuilt ecosystem that, yeah. that, that definitely makes sense. Um, it, if only I was a little bit better at veggie gardening, I'd be happy. <laughs> but my fruit trees are going well, so I'm happy about that. Surely you can put some of that chi- chicken poo on your Yeah, yeah, it, do- it does. I've, I've actually... Um, uh, I'm just about my cow's just about to come back. She's she's almost certifiably pregnant now, so 
one of my two cows is about to come back and then the other one will go and get pregnant so and then i because i've really missed that you you don't um understand how much manure has a like as a free resource yeah not just for mushrooms but for other no <laughs> like well i just i used to always just throw it into the chook pen and let the chook break it down with their manure and then i'd basically that would be my fertilizer but then you go and have to buy fertilizer from bunnings and it's freaking expensive stuff um it's like oh my cow's back <laughs> get my free get my you know oh, d- d- i didn't know what i had <laughs> yeah that's right i, I, was just I did, do miss my cow so um but yeah, the, and I like the the um, what I really want to get going, and I haven't managed to sort of uh, recreate it. Is Northy Street City Farm has their like their wild garden, where everything just sort of they just sort of over the years they've thrown seeds in and seeds of self like plants have self seeded, and now basically it rains and stuff comes up and they let it grow and that's what grows in that garden do they find like weeds or certain things that are quite predominant in that because i don't know how much work they do in in sort of maintaining the edibles versus the well the thing is like a lot of weeds like especially what we're using in the restaurants these days like chickweed and nasturtiums they're essentially like my granddad freaking flips out he's like they're weeds nasturtiums i'm like yeah, they're awesome. They taste delicious. Nasturtium is the second most used salad green in my house. Really? Yeah. Uh, it's after rocket. and delicious and, you know, and why the, not? And the only reason I think it beats rocket is because rocket self-seeds better than nasturtium um, and grows, you know, as long as you can keep the water up to it, it'll grow all year round. But I love nasturtiums. It's awesome. Love, it, love a, like a burger with, you know, like four layers of nasturtium leaves for that sort of then you don't put any pepper on it. It's just like this perfect peppery bite. Yeah, but I was actually working at Gerard's. I just took in, just as a piss take, just how big my nasturtiums had gone. And because um, they were like the size of a plate. It was ridiculous. Yeah. And like normally the fine dining chefs only like it, you know, 20 cent piece. And I was like, huh, yeah. And they're just like, this is brilliant. No one else is doing this. Let's do this. And they just like seriously brushed it with bermoisette, which is like a burnt, I'm oh, sorry, it's like a nut butter. You just okay. take, you cook the butter until it has that kind of nutty hazelnut smell. Sort of like, like a, almost like a medium brown color. Yeah. Yeah. You can definitely see that, like the brownness on the bottom of it. Yeah. And then, so that, that so much flavor. And they brush it and they just place it over their fish. And oh, like, okay. Yeah. That'd be cool. It's just one of those things where you're just like, oh, I let this go for too far. And they're like, no, nah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's something different. And it's just, and it's great when restaurants can actually, you know, work with those idiosyncrasies so to speak like those not just to have that perfect this is what it's going to be every single time and i think that's what chefs need to be like a lot more it's just like okay like the ugly fruit okay it's not perfect but what can we do with this it's still got an amazing flavor you know and most farmers have got it in their head that they would just throw that out they're like oh it's not perfect no one's going to accept it yeah but if the flavour's there, we're chefs and we should be and able to convert that into something beautiful. I really think in Australia, the um, so you, you would know more than me because I've been travelling in Europe, but I think in Europe, flavour is given a much higher precedence. In Australia, looks, transport, I guess because we're a very big country too and, you know, the, the dominant two big supermarkets have pushed this, but... 
flavor seems to come a long way down the list of desirability I in in think that's things that we're slowly trickling back up the line and like the fact that stone fruit no one buys stone fruit these days because no. they know that it's got no flavor at the supermarkets and the supermarkets are slowly yeah, but surely think, think, kind of clicking on to this and even like you were talking about figs up the sunshine coast there was two farmers so i had this farm this guy that called wayne that used to get it directly from the farm and bring it down for me and one fig was amazing but then when it went out out of season there was another guy that could actually grow it under hot houses all year round except he would pick it early so it would be perfect by the time it got to you and i was like it doesn't matter i want it right like and it's probably my own fault because i should just cut it off when it's just like out of season and that's something that we should be doing and we don't it's not ingrained in us because we have that luxury of getting things all year round. That That is definitely an Australian thing and that's why I'm really trying to... Like, I want an orchard because my kids are massive fruit bats and I want to have an orchard so that we can eat fruit without having to buy fruit all year round. That's one of my real ambitions. Like, not having to buy milk and not having to buy fruit are two of the big things I'd like to do. I don't really want to go for complete self-sustainability because I'm a I'm not good enough gardener and b it's madness. Yeah. Um, you know, because <laughs> I don't I don't want to have to grow a wheat crop and then harvest the grains and then like, that's just insane. And I can't grow rice and I like you know I like eating rice. And I'm not going to make my own wine, but to be able to have you can make mead. You yeah, have your own I honey do farm. have my own bees. Yes. Yes. And I have. My, I have had my honey made into meat. I had a brewer who I gave him twenty kilos of honey. Really, and he made what it into brewer meat. did that? Uh, just a just a guy that was just a home brewer. Yeah, right. He he's like, oh, do you want some meat? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, give me twenty kilos of honey, and I'll oh, I'll give yes. you some meat. So. That's what it's about. Just that you know, old school way of just yeah. And transaction. I, I bought a a Dexter cow, which I sold to a guy down the road. But when I went and bought it. Um, it was when Vanessa was pregnant with our first child and she had a cold. And when you're pregnant, you can't have any drugs. Like you can't take Sudafed or anything like that. Mm. And so <laughs> I was um, telling this lady, I was, you know, oh, Vanessa's sick. And she's like, oh, do you want some fresh orange juice for her? Went around the back of their house. And just in this little backyard, they had two orange trees, two mandarin trees, two lemon trees. And they were like kilos and kilos and kilos of fruit ripe beautiful mandarins like the best mandarins i'd tasted in ages she just loaded me up plastic bags full of citrus fruit she said here i just you know pump a full of vitamin c basically um but it'd be really nice if a lot like a if councils planted more edibles i'd really love to, to see that but b if a few more people put edibles in their backyard so yeah Absolutely. You know, not many. Um, another mate of mine rang up and I, I couldn't get them, but um, uh, a friend of hers was pulling out two eight-foot-high fig trees because she didn't like the look of them. No. And she was just going to basically dig them out. She's like, look, they'll dig them out properly for you so you can transplant them if you can get them, but I didn't have any way to get them to my place. But I just, I just about cried, like, just because you what? didn't like the way they looked. Oh. I think it didn't fit. They were trying to, like, have a theme of their garden and didn't fit into the theme. I just about, just about cried. I think, like, the way that you talked about those oranges is like, oh, yeah, they're exceptional and all the citrus and it was just out the back. I think, and especially being a kid or, like, 
knowing how good it actually tastes, that was the same realization that I had as a child. Mm. It's like this pizza is legit. Like yeah. it's actually got flavor, and that's with everything. You know, with as long as you've got, and it even comes back to the soil that you grow it in. Yeah. Like if you really want to go back that far, but and that's what I've struggled with in Brisbane on my little block that it was just practically rocks and yeah. it's like why is everything dying? I am pumping so much into this well, and it was just Australian terrible soils soil. um, traditionally are pretty shit because uh, I know I could swear on this. I was yeah yeah oh back. yeah tick the box yeah. <laughs> um, but when I did my permaculture design course, like and I didn't realise this, but. You know, you need trace elements for everything to grow well. And when the first white people came to Australia, they planted wheat. And the wheat grew amazing for two years and then grew terribly because Australia doesn't have volcanoes and it doesn't have glaciers. Mm -hmm. So we've got X amount of trace elements in the soil. And once you grow something and you take it out of the soil, it's gone. It, Whereas in... Uh, you like, feed that back yeah like so if you have glacial water coming down the down the rivers and then it's sort of that's the way it, it rebuilds the trace elements into the soil so but there's certain things that you can plant as well yes. to, to give it back so as you, well and like instead you, of using pesticides it's like we'll use this plant instead and that will you know naturally deter yeah. these pests you have to plant well, the way they describe uh, that was described to me is you plant things with deep taproots. So there's, you know, if you deplete the trace elements in this much of soil, then you need deep taprooted like comfrey and things like that to pull those trace elements up, and mm-hmm. then you slash the comfrey and throw it on top of you, of like you let it mulch down, and that puts the trace elements back in. Okay, there was something very interesting that I've never thought of before, but they were talking about. I just recently went to Tasmania. And they're saying in the vineyards, they're just like these vineyards, and the wine there is, I can assure you, from <laughs> you, taste you testing. Enough. Yes, <laughs> I did. Um, but it's phenomenal. It really is just incredible. And um, they're just like, well, the soil is so bad at the top that the roots have to go deep. Yeah. And they have to, like, the ones that survive really do go deep. And then, you know, that's what makes a good vineyard. And I couldn't get my head around it. I didn't understand, like, why these were so as good as all these vineyards that have been, you know, they've been nurturing for years over in Europe. And well, that's I didn't understand that concept. I still don't. Stacey uh, explained to me, like, the, the grapes are a particularly very, very hardy fruit tree. Like, they will go down really deep or really wide to get the nutrients that they need and he was talking about the wine in Spain where the rules say you're not even allowed to um, uh, stake them like they could just basically have to fall over you know you're not allowed to grow them on trellises if you want to grow this particular type of wine in Spain it has to be free because that's the way it's always been grown and he said, those um, vines, you can't grow another vine within six metres because that's where the root system goes to. Okay. Like three metres either side yeah, and, right. and deep. Yeah, right, because they don't, they're not... If you plant it within six metres, the new vine is just not going to grow because that vine is dominating so, yeah. a three-metre radius all the way around. Yeah. Um, yeah, what vines are... But, Grapes and, and wine growing is a really interesting thing. How they've all got their own little rules about 
how it works. And I think that's what's quite beautiful about Australia as well, is the <laughs> fact that... <laughs> they don't have to follow the rules. Well, we don't. Like, we don't have that hardcore tradition. Like, when I was in Italy, I actually had to convert um, this menu to English. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's bolognese. And like, no, 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 it's ragu. I'm like, yeah, but people are going to, you know, be yep. able to recognize bolognese. They're not going to know what ragu is, all these American tourists that are coming yep. through. And they're just like, no, no, no. Yeah, bolognese is only from Bologna. And I'm like, yeah, I understand what you're saying. But in America, this is what, this yeah, is a generic this, <laughs> term for this. And they just wouldn't, like, they would not budge. And, it, and that's great. And they've kept their tradition because of that. Yeah. But also, they're not open to new things. And we're in Australia, we've got, and that's why all these amazing chefs are coming here because like yes you get great produce and you're open yeah. you've got no rules set in stone and that's an incredible thing for a chef to have that we can be essentially creatively unbound yes I, I live with uh, an Italian guy for a while and I really understood the European mind and uh just the way it works in, t- in terms of that belief like that real be- that they have a real belief and it's a, it's a good thing and a bad thing but they have that real belief in this in the superior view of having those rules like knowing like it's almost inbuilt into their brains that that is the way it is and that's the way it always will be and he came home from football training and he was wearing these shorts now pulled up high sort of almost to his belly button with his shirt tucked in and being you know a young Australian male household, we've just absolutely piled in on him. And he's just stood there and endured it. And then he looked down at his nose at us and he went, I come from Milano, the fashion capital of the world. Who are you to talk to me about fashion? <laughs> he just, he looked absolutely ridiculous. But the, the absolute belief that where he came from and what that meant totally overrode anything that we were going to say we were never going to shatter that confidence it was so inbuilt into his the very fiber of his being and the same way when he cooked he was a terrible cook but he would make spaghetti and he would make it the traditional way with the ingredients and i'm sure if if a prop like someone who was good at cooking in italian in italy had made it it's not that at all it's actually quite the opposite is like and i didn't discover it until i went there is that okay so in australia we pretty much keep the not so good food for Australians and export yes. the best. Yes, that's Where in right. Italy, it's completely the opposite. Where they keep, they keep the all that good stuff, tomatoes. and that is like you chumps can have the rest of it. And so, yeah, I've had freaking all that blue cheese, the prosciutto, and, and that's why I put on so much weight when I went there because yeah. I'm like, yeah, I've had prosciutto, yeah. but not like this before. Give me some more. <laughs> <laughs> and it is like that. It's, like so, maybe it would have been delicious him he, cooking that with those ingredients. ingredients. But yeah. if he has to use the things that Italy is sending us over here, then well, yeah, it's he not going to be the same. You know, tomato, <laughs> probably home brand tomato paste yeah. and, and well, packet spaghetti. So yeah. I remember we went to the berry factory when I went around Australia when I was a kid, and we got went through the tour and everything. And at the end, they had like. Uh, tins of fruit that had little dints in them so that they couldn't export them and we bought these export peaches for Japan three peaches to an 800 gram tin peach halves sorry to an 800 gram tin and they were fucking amazing I was like 
I've never tasted tinned peaches like this before. Japanese always do things and, well, don't they? And it was, well, and the, the guys at Berry said, oh, yeah, get these. These are the export ones. This is like the the top, top shelf peaches that we export. And all the, you know, all the bottom third of the peaches is what goes into the Australian tinned fruit. Um, but, yeah. So that's what I want to address as well that's what i want i want to go make those connections with the farms and be like no nah. yeah give us your top shelf why stuff. not yeah okay that profit margin but it seems ridiculous that we can't have that kind of because oh. at the end of the day it's all about the produce and the first place i actually worked at was at david Rainer's place at um at noosa it was called the river house and that's pretty much what we would do we would change our menu every single day and everyone would just be in charge of their section and change the menu on that we'd have to work together but you just have the stoner of a fr- veggie man just coming in and being like this is what's great yep. use this and they're like okay off the cuff menu go and it was just the produce was so good you couldn't go wrong we're apprentices yep. we're making up menus and it was you know in all the delicious mags and the gourmet travellers and because you couldn't go wrong the produce was that good I always had a dream of running a, a little cafe where you had a big garden out the back and you had no menu someone would come in and say I'd like some lunch please and you go uh, I can give you this <laughs> And you, they, they would either go, yes, thank you, I will have that, or they'd go, no, I don't want that. And you'd say, well, bugger off. That's all I've got in, you know, that's what I've got in the garden. You probably would go broke within six yeah, weeks. definitely. But, <laughs> but it's a nice idea. It is a nice idea. And I'm sure there's a market for it somewhere in yeah. the right place. You'd have to charge like $50 a main or something. That's what I feel like people... It's, it's funny, actually, because... Um, one of my housemates is actually one of the most passionate chefs that I've ever come across. And, um, and his dad's always on his back, like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this many hours? And what do you, what do you get for it? And, you know, you don't get paid properly. And he's finally come to a good, um, a good, what's that? Happy meeting? No, 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 definitely not that. <laughs> um, but he's finally had a good comeback in the fact that it's your fault, Dad. And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, you don't want to spend the money. Yeah, you don't understand. you just like, you look at that, you say, okay, I'm prepared to pay $30, $40 for a steak. And he's mm. like, this is the price for steak at the moment. This is the price for this. That, And people don't see all the overcovers as well, like the, all the overheads that... You just, you can't, yes, okay, fair enough. You can get that piece of steak if you could possibly get that quality of steak and cook it at home and it would be, you know, half the price. But the things that go into it, the training, the, you know, the lights, the, all the bits and pieces, people don't see. And he's just like, it's your fault, Dad, because you don't want to pay. You're not happy paying $60 for a piece of steak, and that's fine. You're happy to go to somewhere that's like an RSL that they make their money over the pokies and they can give you a a $15 steak, which makes people think that it's absorbent to pay $50 for a good piece of meat. But even, I think... um, And especially supporting those right guys and the guys that are actually doing it, actually treating those animals properly, you have to pay those extra prices. So if you want a guilt-free conscience... And I've actually thought about this lately that, okay, cigarette packets have this, you know, this is going to give you cancer and this is what you're going to end up like. And I feel like, okay, we shouldn't take away people's freedom 
if you've got a budget, if you've got like a family of five mm. and on a minimum wage, then there's no problem with that. But also, it should be plastered on those eggs. This is what's happening to these chickens. Yeah. Or this is what's happening to this chicken or, you know, in any kind well, of food domain. But I, I'm hoping that the milk thing that's happening at the moment is a tipping point. That's just one, like, okay, really, because had you got to the stage where they had to back pay them, like, not back pay them, but they demanded back pay from these farmers, it got to that stage of, that's ridiculous, and that's so outrageous, and it really has to come to that for anyone to be like, oh, this is a problem. This, these kind of things have been happening for oh, so long. For ages, and I really noticed on social media, a lot of people that had never questioned any of that sort of stuff at all all of a sudden sat up and thought about the milk that they buy. And the good thing is with something like that is it's a thought process. So if they think about that, then maybe the next time they go and buy eggs, they'll think about eggs. Or when they buy, you know, um, they might think about where their steak come from. I don't think so. I don't think people are... Like, I honestly, and this is only... I've always thought quite openly about things but i think people don't critically analyze enough people are quite absorbed with their own world that they don't even like they'll believe anything they're told instead of going oh hang on people's actions because i i know at work and in places that i've been like i'm like surely this shit talk is just shit talk and people can see action speak louder than words. And I'm a form, like, and modesty. I'm all about being a modest chef as well, despite drinking wine and blabbering on. Um, <laughs> but you know when you think that, honestly, at the end of the day, people will see those actions rather than what they hear and what they're being told. And I don't think people critically analyse enough. And I'm not sure if people will make that connection. People are so absorbed with their own world. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's great that you've got a life. But do they take the time to properly say, oh, this is terrible with milk, but what about every other avenue? Do they? I think you have to take the small battles, though, because the, the good thing about the milk thing, so I'm a bit of... I'm not a massive evangelist, but I am a little bit, especially on like eggs and pork and milk. They're the three that I'm, I, I think are the, the, the most over-processed, over, uh, you, you know, like bag conditions. You have, you, you, you're screwing over the farmer, you're screwing over the consumer. Everyone's losing in that, except the supermarkets in those yep. three areas. So the good thing about the milk is if someone is starting to buy... And, and you can actually buy really good milk now. There's three or four companies that will sell you unhomogenized milk as it is, straight out of the cow. It's been pasteurized. You yeah, have to I was pasteurize say, it. But otherwise, it's just pet milk. Yeah, yeah. Like, you have to pasteurize it, but it's still, it, it's not deconstructed milk. It's milk that's coming out of a cow. They heat it up to 80 degrees, they bring it back down, and they put it in a bottle. It's not pulled apart, added A2 or whatever you want to add to it, or this much fat to make it trim. It's just milk. So if people are starting to buy that sort of thing and they have a stepping off point, then maybe when you have a conversation with them, instead of them going, well, I just buy the Woolworths milk, the the cage eggs and the the cage pork, they say, oh, yeah, I buy the Norco, you know, the the full cream milk from Norco. And it's like, okay, well, if you're doing that, maybe you should be looking at 
this brand of eggs that treat their chickens sustainably. And if you can just push them a little bit along the path, I think it, it, it gives you a point to start off. Yeah. Um, whereas I don't think before, like, like, I have met people that actually buy caged eggs as an act of, well, I don't want to be a hippie lefty. And it's like, are you insane? Like, seriously. You, you know, it's almost like I'm proud to buy caged eggs because I believe in food should be as cheap as possible. And it's like, just... I've never heard that before. Yeah, I'm serious. I have met people like that before. Like, I understand, especially from the restaurant perspective of people, you know, but making you, but, up intolerance intolerances and all the rest but you kind of but just still, accept it but like everyone that take... comes into a restaurant is at least a little bit about passionate for food otherwise they wouldn't be at a restaurant yeah. would they i can't believe that well it's the, it's the same it's the same thought process that why people eat at mcdonald's seven days a week like it's just a lack of interest a lack of care um but I, I start to see that flipping and even like in woolworths i'm starting to see some some interesting things that I wouldn't have seen, like, you know, the fact that they are selling three brands of milk that's like that. They're selling beef cheeks, like, and kidneys. Like, that's... But you must live in... Pa- oh, where do you No, live? this is in Bean... This is what I'm saying. This is in Bean okay, Lee. This is in... Normally like, this is in okay, Bogan Central. The way that I see Woolworth structured is they kind of analyse that area and I actually live in Paddington so I get those like yeah, yeah. weird kind of things because there's widows around and people like, you know, but going to a, a like less fortunate yeah. area, they don't have that same variety. No, it's, it's cheap mints and, and exactly. Woolworths and milk. So but, that, but I actually think um, that's where you're seeing the biggest change. Like, People with lots of disposable income can afford to make those choices. But if I think it's admirable if you're on a low income and you're like, no, I'm going to buy the free-range eggs. I'm going to buy beef cheeks because that's a cup that normally just goes into pet mints. You know, I'm going to buy the good milk. Um, the other one I love is Woolworths is selling um, fresh mozzarella. Proper fresh mozzarella. And it's like, um, that's great. Like, if, if it's selling well enough in Bean Lee that someone is, you know, what are you doing with that? You're putting it on pizza? Someone is making pizzas from scratch. Enough people are making pizzas from scratch in Bean Lee for the Woolworths at Bean Lee to warrant stocking mozzarella. I find that incredibly encouraging that at least people are caring enough about some of their ingredients that that stuff is doing well. Because... When There's I no first way came, that the Woolworths would stock it unless there was a no. That's right. They're not. They're not stocking it out of the goodness of yeah. their hearts. Yeah. You know, um, and that's like that's why. Like I shop at a whole heap of different places, but I'll go out of my way anywhere that stocks that sort of ingredients. Like I will make sure I try and buy it up as much as possible, so that they keep stocking it. So that you know, maybe someone that normally wouldn't buy fresh mozzarella season in a recipe or season on a show on tv and goes oh okay maybe i'll try that because like fresh mozzarella compared to you know the 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 sort of grated mozzarella in a packet is like chalk and cheese oh, yeah. it's, it's amazing difference <laughs> so you would have had some good mozzarella in italy yeah so good too good too good that's the one i've, I've made good halloumi i've made good Camembert slash brie. I'm keen to try this cheese. Oh, have you had fresh, like fresh, fresh halloumi? 
Um, we used to get some. So at work, we actually um, got from Mount Tambourine their halloumi oh, there, yeah. yep. which was honestly the best halloumi I've ever had. Oh, there's, I think, fresh, like one day old halloumi when it's soft and spongy and. All right, hook us up. Come it, on. It, it it doesn't have that. You know how halloumi's got that squeak and it yeah and that rubberiness like that's what sort of things when it's really really fresh like two days old before the salt sort of taken the moisture out of it it's like eating a cross between halloumi and a marshmallow it's just so soft and spongy it's fantastic i love fresh halloumi that's probably that and i make a a feta which is like um so feta is the 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 default i've got shitloads of milk what do i do because it's it's easy to sort of set it into you know your curd what do you actually do? Like, what's the process of making cheese from this milk? So, like, say, say feta was always my... Because, A, we use a lot of it at home in cooking and just generally, like, sandwiches and things like that. Like, Because it's, it's the easiest cheese to make and it's the one that I can hit without much effort and it's pretty much spot on. So, you know, your, um, you'd have them in the, in the restaurants, the... Like the big plastic cubes that you store stuff in? We don't have them, but I've got them in, yes. Yeah, so I've got two of those. and you, you So you set the, the milk with your rennet. Yeah. So, and once it's set... What kind of rennet do you use? Uh, I use junket tablets usually. Yeah. Just because yeah, they're... that's cool. But, well, they're, they're easy. Like, rennet goes... It has, a, it has like a, a half-life. Yeah. So... If it's too old or if I've left it out of the fridge too long and I didn't put it back in the fridge, you get varied um, results in terms of setting. Yeah. So if, And if it doesn't set right, then everything sort of goes... It's harder to do from there. Whereas rennet tablets are incredibly, like, you know, one and Precise, a half yeah. for this much milk and it's, it's going to be dead on. And then you get a big flat uh, sort of... Um, like a ladle, you know, like a big yeah. flat ladle, and you take like scoops and you lay it into one of those cubes that's had all holes drilled in it, so it drains, and you lay it, lay it, lay it until it's completely full, and then you get another one of those cubes and you fill it with water and you put it on top, and then you just let it sit overnight and it and it loses about half its um half its size, mm-hmm. and then you just cut it up into you know your blocks and put it in salt water. And, and I always used to have like two or three kilos of it just sitting around at all times. Can hook me up. Yeah, well, well, we'll do some trading. I love trading. <laughs> all right, I'm running out of batteries, so we should probably go. Have you got anything you would like to plug? Oh, we didn't actually speak about drinks with chefs at all. Oh yeah, so tell me about drinks with chefs. <laughs> that that is that is almost classic cheesy to, oh, to start off with. Something. All right, that was a that was a very long introduction. Yeah, you, so you've had a, you've had a fifty three minute introduction. <laughs> now you get to tell me. All right, so um, essentially, drinks with chefs is what the hospitality have created of Brisbane to kind of make it more tight knit community within brisbane and so we can we can push forward together because i believe collectively we can you know so so is it basically open to all chefs any chefs in brisbane no not just and i really hate that like i I don't like it being so segregated chefs in front of house stuff 
Okay, like, I so think any, it's a anyone, whole, anyone it's, that it's works in a restaurant. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why every time I've kind of included like the pair matching of um, the degustation. So the way that we make it is we're trying to make it really affordable so we can actually um, train the next generation of chefs as well. Yep. And so by doing that, we get everyone together, give them, you know, all these amazing little starters and these canapes from all the chefs that are really well known and like essentially the the influences of the industry and then but we change the chef every time as well and the change the the places every time yep um just to keep it fresh and and give a good variety of what's actually and how much variety we do have um but essentially we wanted to sorry i've got off track here Too many wines. This yeah. is terrible. No, no. This is this is standard. This is standard. This is not a standard drink. Um, <laughs> so what we wanted to do was get all everyone together, group them together. But we don't want to segregate, you know, front of house and like it's all the combination. So um, the the dego itself. So when you get there, there's kind of like a lucky draw so to speak and people's names get drawn out of this massive copper pot and so they get actually taken down to this private dining room and then the chefs of the night make this degustation for them so they get this $300 degustation for free on the night and it's really giving those chefs as well this platform to be creatively unbound and really showcase where we want to steer Brisbane's food or now as like Queensland's food and by doing that as well like now we're theming it up with wastage so I've actually challenged the chefs furthermore by saying okay at the end of the day we're gonna have to be sustainable yeah there's no other reason there's no other way like you can ignore it as long as you want, but we need to properly look at this. And so they're going to bring in, despite me, you know, having scientists there going, yeah, this is what you should be doing. This is actually making it more digestible for the chefs going, okay, so how the frick do we do this? Well, and so they're just like, well, look, I'm putting it, parsnip skins in my dessert and it tastes delicious. So there you go. And, you know, there's all the whole these... idea of being a chef is being able to... Uh, like if you've got everything perfectly exactly how you want it like if I could get whatever ingredient I wanted but they do and people aren't used to restrictions and that's the problem and people are just looking and even though where this kind of event kind of pushes where we can go and because essentially the reason why I made this event was because I was really pissed off with the burger trend going around town. <laughs> I'm not even joking. Like, I'd come to Brisbane and I'm just like, yep, it's grown so much in five years. I should settle down here. And then all of a sudden this, like, trend came along of where it was accessible to every single place just to sell burgers and they were making a fortune. I'm like, And so everyone jumped on board. And I'm like, no. I'm not happy with this. <laughs> and instead of bitching, because I don't believe in backstabbing and I don't believe in bitching, and I was like, no, do you know what? It's going to get everyone back on track. And that's how it was created. Yeah. And and it is. It's guys that are really trying to push the limits and try, trying to do the right thing. And that's why we need to... Every single one now 
is going to be quite educational in the fact that you know it's going to be unique in what we're going to theme it as this one being sustainability and wasted I used to play um, when I were in the music venues we had a little in-house darts team one of the guys was a chef and he worked at one of the Irish pubs in Brisbane yeah now he was a really talented chef but I think he was a little bit burnt out he was just working. There's a lot of other things that you have no idea about that happen in the workplace. Yeah, like he, he, was, he was sort of like, you know, I go to work. It's pretty crazy. He's not working. He wasn't working 90 hours a week. Like it, was a, it wasn't a challenging job in any way. So it wasn't challenging. It wasn't pushing him, but it also, that was also a good thing and a bad thing. Do you know, it was, it was a bad thing because he would have liked to have been pushed a little bit more. Mm. But it was also a good thing because it was he could just rock up and put minimal effort in and push out a reasonable product. That would have been... What you're describing would be perfect for him because what he needed was something to inspire him a little bit, to do something a little bit more. And to incorporate it into every single place. Yeah, so like he could go back and he could still be working for an Irish pub, but he could probably do it a lot better than what he was. Yeah. And I know he could because we used to talk food all the time and every week we played darts, he would give me... This is when I was first starting to try and spread my wings as a home cook. And so every week he would handwrite me a recipe and say, here, go and try this. Yeah. And like I've got a couple of those recipes that I still just absolutely love. And that's why I don't want to make... Because like, Brisbane's very clicky as well. Like There's certain groups that just kind of stick together and I don't want that. And that's why I've kept it kind of 50 people. So people reach out beyond their little clicky groups, groups as well and we can properly and the one main concern of yes okay because in the past chefs have kept their kind of recipes or their secrets very yeah, close yeah. to their heart and this being the opposite of like well we can grow but we can grow together and um it's a new so to speak concept and the way that I want to do it is just like they're just ideas and you can interpret them like if we have a range of people they're all going to interpret them their own ways yeah, that's as well right. just like okay I'm a fine dining person oh that's a new idea that I've never thought of I'm going to make that into my own and oh I'm a pub chef but maybe I can well, you know make this more sustainable in my pub because I know we waste all of this and it's it's not about if you can influence one or two people every dinner, then that's a win, isn't it? Really, I think it's a lot more. Yeah, yeah, but like a lot more would be better. But even if you got to got through to one or two people, like what? How often are you holding them? Once a month? No, not even. Like not a even. couple of times a year. Yeah, okay. three times max. It's just yeah. At the end of the day, I'm doing massive hours. So <laughs> how do how do people get onto it? How do they get involved? So we've got a facebook website yeah which is probably the best and we've got instagram and so therefore every time we've got an event or whatever's happening it'll it be gets up posted on, there. on that yeah so we'll whack those in the show notes and i'll add them to the when i tweet out the the show link but Perfect. thank you very much a lot oh, coming in thank you cool. and thank you for the wine no worries cheers <laughs> cheers see ya